Welcome to the Reasoned Hope podcast. In this podcast, we explore the intellectual credibility of the Christian faith. We seek to show how the central hope found in Jesus Christ is not only rational, but that the Christian worldview makes sense of our experience, our deepest longings, and our intuitions about the world. Thanks for listening, and we hope today's episode is both encouraging and challenging to you, whether you are a believer or a skeptic. Welcome and thank you for joining me today on this episode of the Reasoned Hope podcast. We're in a series of episodes right now looking at the topic of deconstruction. This is deconstruction specifically focused on Christianity. So the first episode that I did looked at the topic of deconstruction in a general sense, as in what what is this movement what do proponents of it claim? What are some maybe uh, helpful things they emphasize? And then what are some problematic uh, aspects that Christians need to be aware of? Then the next episode was looking at more specifically a book called Faith Deconstruction 101, which was written uh, with the purpose of trying to help Christians learn how to deconstruct their faith without losing it. And uh, I said at the outset that This is one particular author uh, coming from one specific perspective in the deconstruction movement. Uh, There's there's a lot of uh, people within this movement, so the things I say here may or may not apply to everyone writing books about this topic. But I think generally a a lot of the things that that I try to touch on do have relevance Um, wherever, whatever website you may go to, whatever book you may find. Uh, on this topic. So uh, in the last episode, I began to look at this book. Today, I'm going to continue uh, that sort of uh, looking at some of the claims in this book and, and what the author is trying to teach and uh, just trying to understand them and uh, try to think critically about them because that's really what this podcast is about. It's, it's examining the intellectual credibility of the Christian faith uh, but it's also trying to teach people how to think better about what they believe and why they believe it. So in the last episode, I looked at the introduction and I looked at the first section called What is Deconstruction? So we covered those two sections in the last episode. Uh, today, I'm going to look at the really what, what is kind of the third chapter. Uh, it's called What Comes After? And the focus of the author in this chapter is uh, trying to teach readers what what does deconstruction uh, lead to? What as in when you go through deconstruction, this process, um, and you go through this process of kind of tearing down uh, old beliefs, um, maybe redoing some of those beliefs. What what comes after that? Um, so. Before I get into that, though, I, I just want to reemphasize what the author's stated purpose is for this ebook. So uh, this is what she says the, the purpose for this book. Quote, We've written this ebook to help the thousands upon thousands of people who feel ostracized, perhaps even condemned, for being committed to asking the deeper questions and seeking truth, beauty, goodness, and the divine, wherever they may be, end quote. 
So keep that in your mind. That That's the author's purpose. It's designed to help people who are asking deeper questions and trying to seek uh, truth, beauty, goodness, and the divine, wherever they may be. Now, as I said before, that's a little bit um, vague as far as uh, what that means. Uh, so, But the author is going to get a little bit more into that today. This section is called What Comes After. So this is about the third chapter in the book. And a major theme here is the idea of reconstruction. So in the previous section, the author spent a lot of time talking about what deconstruction is and how um, she wants readers to think about it. So here, what comes after, the initial answer is it is a process of reconstruction. So according to the author, this is the phase that should follow deconstruction. And it is a process of um, what may be called spiritual rebuilding um, after one has um, changed and or gotten rid of beliefs that they formerly held. So if you go back to that image of the, the house from the last episode, we kind of talked about this. Uh, the author paints this picture that deconstruction is kind of like a house that you've been living in for a while, and you begin to notice that certain things in it need to be replaced or maybe torn out, some remodeling needs to be done. And she kind of uses this as an image to talk about Christian faith, that you might be raised in the church, and you might be uh, told that certain things are kind of core beliefs of Christianity, but as you go through life, and the longer you're a Christian, at some point you may start to realize that certain of these beliefs are no longer useful or no longer helpful, and they might be in need of some updating. And so uh, reconstruction is kind of that idea of rebuilding the house. So this is the way the author starts off this next uh, section. She says, Most often, deconstruction begins with an awakening, a niggling but growing awareness that something isn't right. We dismiss or rationalize it away for a while, but when it refuses to go away and can no longer be ignored, we are forced to face it head on. And facing it head on means being willing to admit what's wrong and needs to be dismantled even if doing so means also exposing other flaws. Thus, the awakening is paradoxically followed by death, the death of the old, decayed, corrupted, broken parts of our faith. But just like the earth doesn't reside in perpetual winter, we also must move from death to life. Yet, unlike the earth, there is no set time period for remaining in winter, or any season for that matter. Whenever we reach the point of fully letting go, however long that takes, we are now ready and in need of a period of reconstruction and regrowth. As a concept, reconstruction is not hard to understand. I tore my house down. Now I must rebuild something in its place or be homeless. But accomplishing it is a whole different story, since we effectively threw out the blueprints when we began pointing out and refusing to live by today's established religions and denominations' flaws. All right, I'm just going to stop right there for a second because there are a couple things to um, think about here. So reconstruction is a is a good thing in the author's eyes. It's a process of kind of rebuilding what you tore down. And really, the first thing to notice about both of these uh, things, 
whether you're talking about deconstruction or reconstruction, is that you have to assume uh, some sort of criteria by which you are evaluating uh, beliefs to keep and beliefs to either change or discard. Because how, how else are you going to know what beliefs need to be torn down and replaced? And how do you know what they need to be replaced with? Uh, all, all of these... Um, all of these things surrounding getting rid of beliefs and rebuilding require some kind of criteria by which to make those decisions. And I'm curious to know what that criteria is. And so far in the book, we haven't really been given any clear guidance on how to do that and what is supposed to guide those decisions. And I think this is a little bit strange for a book that is claiming to give guidance to people on how to deconstruct their faith without losing it. Because if somebody is a Christian and they've been raised to um, believe that, that certain truths are, are core aspects of the Christian faith, and then all of a sudden they hear someone telling them that uh, certain beliefs may no longer be useful or helpful— and may need to be discarded, that immediately raises the question of how do you know which beliefs fit into this category? So I just want to point out at this point, that's something the author has not provided. She's not provided any sort of criteria by which to make that kind of decision, which I think is a huge problem. So that is something that I'm going to keep coming back to because I think it is, I think it's one of the major uh, flaws uh, of this book. But as, as far as the idea of reconstruction goes, it seems like a good thing because the author is claiming to be moving past merely staying in a state of deconstruction, um, which for, for some people, at least that I have heard in the deconstruction movement, they, they get to a place where um, they want to point out what they, what they feel are uh, significant flaws in Christian belief. And so they want to encourage people in deconstruction and kind of tearing those beliefs down and going through that sort of process. But they really don't provide any place for people to go after that. It's, it's almost like deconstruction for some ends up just being a perpetual state of doubt and skepticism. And as I said in, in the last episode, nobody can live that way. Nobody can live in a state of perpetual doubt and skepticism because you can't live without uh, believing in something, with having some sort of fundamental commitment in the way you think about the world. Uh, you have to have some foundational truth guiding the way you think about the world. And to be in a, a perpetual state of doubt and skepticism is just not sustainable, nor is it rational. So just the concept of reconstruction is the, the good thing about that is that this author is at least encouraging people to move past the deconstruction phase, which I think is good. But a significant problem with this idea here of reconstruction is that the author says it's not guided by any sure set of blueprint or steps or ideas. She's kind of continuing to use this, this imagery of tearing down a house and rebuilding it. So let me just read this part again. She's talking about reconstruction. Uh, she says, as a concept, 
Reconstruction is not hard to understand. I tore my house down. Now I must rebuild something in its place or be homeless. But accomplishing it is a whole different story since we effectively threw out the blueprints when we began pointing out and refusing to live by today's established religions and denominations' flaws. So how do we begin rebuilding faith anew if there are no plans to follow? Okay, I'll stop there. I think that's a really good question, because if you're trying to provide people with guidance on how to deconstruct their faith without losing it, and then you go and you talk about this phase of reconstruction, then how are people going to know what this looks like unless you can provide some sort of steps for them to follow, or at least some form of guidance? So it sounds like at first, she's saying there really isn't a way to go about this. So um, let's see what she says here. She says, it's difficult, but it's not impossible. Though the process of reconstruction is nebulous and not something we can pin down to any one set of steps or ideas, there are people throughout history who have trod this path before us. There are many, but here's a list of 10 such people. These individuals refused to capitulate on their convictions or what they knew to be true even after being labeled heretics by the religious powers of their time. Once they'd been outcast to the fringes of faith, deemed unorthodox and therefore dangerous, they found themselves without a community and without a blueprint for moving forward. But that didn't discourage them like the religious powers hoped it would. Instead, they forged their own path, and it's in their footsteps we must follow. So, it seems here that um, she still doesn't provide uh, much by way of guidance as uh, to what this process of reconstruction is supposed to look like. Because she starts off and says, though the process of reconstruction is nebulous and not something we can pin down to any one set of steps or ideas, and then she goes on to talk about these people throughout history um, who have kind of gone against the grain of the religious authorities of their day. I think she's she's not providing she's still not providing a a clear set of steps by which somebody would go through this. And I I think that again is a problem um, because she she raises the question of how to rebuild your faith and then doesn't really provide a substantive answer to this. Now she does mention, uh, she does cite examples of people throughout history who she kind of labels heretics. Now, heretics are just, um, that that's just a way of referring to somebody who seems to be going against established religious beliefs of the time. Um, and we, we don't really, you don't really hear that word too much anymore, but uh, the the idea is that there are people throughout history who have gone against the grain of the religious um, beliefs of their day, whether you're talking about um, somebody from the Middle Ages or maybe even before then. Uh, the, the, the principle, though, that she's referencing is that you have people who go against the established beliefs of the time. And um, she characterizes people like this as if, if you go against the established religious beliefs of the time— whatever that may look like, then you remove uh, yourself from having a clear blueprint for your beliefs moving forward. Or that at least seems to be 
what she's saying. And in the book, she provides a link to, um, it's like a hyperlink to a website, and it's it's an article that lists basically kind of examples of people like this from throughout history. And there's there's like, I think it's like 10 of them, so there's uh, quite a few here. Uh, I was scrolling through that list, and I found uh, a man named John Huss, who was one of the reformers, Protestant reformers, if you know anything about uh, church history, you will know that the reformers were those who were um, reacting against some of the things that the Catholic Church had been teaching in their day. Uh, Martin Luther is another example of somebody like this. There, there were certain practices of the Catholic Church that people like John Huss and Martin Luther felt were uh, going against the uh, teachings of the Bible. So here's where I think there's a problem in what the author's saying here. People like Martin Luther and John Huss, they were people who did have a source of uh, authority and a, a blueprint, if you want to call it that. They were people who had something like this that they were basing their beliefs on. It wasn't as if, if they were just uh, jettisoning everything that they had been uh, taught um by the Catholic Church, it was that there were particular things that they felt like the Catholic Church was going against um, that were based on the Bible. These reformers were appealing to the text of the Bible and the things that were taught on a plain interpretation of what the Bible said, whereas they thought the Catholic Church had deviated from this. And so I I think it's problematic to characterize the type of deconstruction and reconstruction process, and then to compare it to people like the Reformers, uh, people like John Huss and Martin Luther, because these were people who were not in a situation at all where they had no idea how to move forward in their thinking about their beliefs. Their source of guidance and authority, their blueprint, was uh, the Bible. And so I don't think this is a good comparison here. Now, I will say that there's a bunch of other people in that list uh, that the author links to, and uh, I'm not familiar with all of them, so I can't really speak to all the people on that list. But as far as it pertains to Christian faith, I think appealing to people in the past who were deemed heretics, and and who at least some of them uh, lumped into this characterization had been the Protestant reformers, I think it's problematic because I don't think the situations are the same at all. Now, there's one more, um, there's another incoherence that I think is found in this book. And that it's, it's on the one hand, the author is claiming to be giving a correct way of viewing one's religious beliefs. And then on the other hand, she doesn't want to commit to any sort of maybe what she would view as religious dogmatism, this thinking that you have the truth, this unchanging truth about God. And this will come out more as we continue to go through this section. But keep keep that in the back of your mind, and I think you'll see what I'm talking about. And I, I think this is confusing, again, for a book claiming to be offering guidance for people on how to deconstruct their faith without losing it. Because if you if you get the sense that the author doesn't want to make any sort of 
uh, commitments that she might view in the vein of religious dogmatism, it's going to be difficult to provide people with with a sure uh, footing on which to move forward after they uh, have deconstructed their faith. Now they want to reconstruct. Um, if you don't have a, a foundation for that, it's not going to be helpful for people, and it's it's not going to really give them any, anything uh, to move forward with. Now, you, you probably caught this already in some of the sections that I've read, but another thing that I want to bring out is that the author sets up a division between what she calls today's established religions and denominations, and then those people who are embarking on this process of deconstruction and reconstruction. So the idea seems to be that um, when a person is courageous enough to deconstruct their faith, they will be freed from humanly constraints and divisions and therefore free to pursue God in all God's expanse. So that's a quote from the author. Now, this, this division between um, those embarking on deconstruction and reconstruction and then today's established religions and denominations is at least built partly on the idea that there are flaws in the beliefs and maybe practices of the established religions and denominations. So that's where the author's reference to the heretics of the past uh, comes in and making that comparison. Now, uh, she goes on to describe kind of these heretics of the past, and she says these individuals refused to capitulate on their convictions or what they knew to be true even after being labeled heretics by the religious powers of their time. Once they'd been outcast through the fringes of faith, deemed unorthodox and therefore dangerous, they found themselves without a community and without a blueprint for moving forward, but that didn't discourage them like the religious powers hoped it would. Instead, they forged their own path, and it's in their footsteps we must follow. As terrifying as that sounds, their lives bear witness to the fact that they had actually been set free, free from humanly constraints and divisions, and therefore free to pursue God in all God's expanse. So you get the image there. You have people who are kind of struggling against the religious powers of their time, and they're bold enough to go against these religious powers and to forge their own path in their beliefs. And I've, I've already talked about what I think are some problems with making comparisons to people like this uh, and then connecting it with people deconstructing their faith. Um, no one would have described Martin Luther as a, a deconstructor. But I, I also think one thing we need to be careful about is seeing everything through the lens of uh, power struggles. You know, there certainly was a time in history when different uh, religions have had have kind of been merged with the state. And so you get uh, issues of politics and power mixed with uh, the church. And uh, that's a whole other topic, so I'm not going to get into all that. I just want to make the point right now that I think if you, if you view religious beliefs through this lens of like power struggle all the time, I think that can be problematic. And I think, it, I think it can distort the history of what actually has taken place in some of these situations. And as I've already said, I think that happens if you try to make Martin Luther or John Huss or any of these other uh, reformers, if you try to make them fit this mold of deconstructors, because that's, that's just not, that's not what they were doing. 
um, the, the author's kind of already laid out what she thinks deconstruction is. If you compare that to people like Martin Luther and John Huss, that's not what they were doing at all. So just a caution there about maybe viewing things a little too politically as power struggles. Uh, that's really not, that's not always the best category to view these uh, kinds of things in. And then we get into this idea of being free to pursue God in all God's expanse, kind of being free from these um, human constraints and divisions. And she goes on to say this, no more trying to demystify, tame, and contain an uncontainable, wild, ineffable God. Now, I'll stop there. What does it mean for God to be ineffable? Well, it means that we can't fully know God in all of who he is, that, that there's things about God that are beyond us. And I talked about this a little bit in the last episode, but you see this idea come up again here. This is a claim about um, human knowledge of God and to what extent humans can have knowledge of God. So she characterizes God here as uncontainable, wild, and ineffable. Now, it's certainly the case, at least from a biblical perspective, that nobody can contain God, as in nobody can tell God what to do. Nobody has control over God. God is uh, sufficient in and of himself, and he is all-powerful, and he's all-knowing. So he has no need of anyone else to tell him what he needs to do. Um, he's, he's not under anyone's control. It's, it's a little unclear what the term wild would mean when applied to God, um, I'll just give her the benefit of the doubt and sort of say that, you know, that could mean just kind of reemphasizing the fact that nobody has control over God. God is his own person, and he does as he pleases. Um, so I, I, I think, in a sense, depending on how we understand these terms, they're not inaccurate descriptions of God. But I think it is, the problem here is the use to which these terms are put, the conclusions that the author comes to about God and about our knowledge of God. So I've, I've said before that simply because God is not fully knowable from a human perspective does not mean that we don't truly know God. Or in other words, just because God is not fully comprehensible by us does not mean that we cannot know true things about God. And if you know true things about God, um, based on the kind of being God is, uh, he's, he's unchanging. And so if you know the truth that God is holy or that God is loving or that God is personal, um, the, these things about him don't change. And I, I think that is an important point to get because one principle behind this whole uh, project of deconstruction is that there are beliefs that become problematic or not useful over time. And sometimes, for some people, in many ways, it is the very truths about God that come under question and that, and that seem to need updating. So the basic point that I'm just trying to make is that if there are truths about God, these truths about God are unchanging. They will be truths that God has revealed about his nature and character. And his commands flow from his perfectly moral, morally good nature and character. And so you can see how uh, 
God's commands connect to his character of who he is, his character and nature are unchanging. So it be, it starts to become problematic to, to think that, um, that these kinds of beliefs need to be updated in some way, because if they've re- been revealed by an unchanging God, why would they need to be updated? And that gets back to the question of criteria. How do we know what, what aspects of Christian um, belief need to be updated? What, what standard are we using to make those decisions? So basic point is that just because God is not fully knowable doesn't mean we can't know God. And, and then the idea of pursuing God in all God's expanse is uh, not super clear. Um, presumably, I, I just think the, the author means that uh, you are put in a place where you are sort of free to pursue God in maybe any way that, that you find that you connect with God or in any way that you find helpful. Or um, it, It's just it's unclear at this point what that means, um, but it seems like she might mean something like that. And then um, I think you have to ask the question, what is it specifically about today's established religions and denomination that would seek to contain God? You know, she described, um, she said, no more trying to demystify, tame, and contain an uncontainable, wild, ineffable God. So I think we have to back up and say, what is it about today's established religions that, um, and denominations uh, that would seek to contain God? Now, she's coming from a Christian perspective, so I'm just assuming that she means Christian denominations. So far, I think the, the, the only clues that we sort of have are maybe that she's saying that established religion in this way is wrong in thinking that there are unchanging truths about God. So if you think that you have some kind of unchanging uh, knowledge about God's character, well, then that, that's trying to contain God. Because you're saying that God can only be this way. God can't be this other way over here. You have to think about God like this. You can't think about him like that. And as we'll get into, I mean, I, I think at the end of the day, this has to do with, um, has God revealed himself to us? If, if God has not revealed himself, then, then we don't have any, any real sure knowledge of God. But if God has revealed himself, and depending on the way he's revealed himself, then we can have knowledge of God that, that we can be confident in and that we can cling to and, and that doesn't change over time and that it's the very opposite of trying to contain God. Then you start to see that maybe the people who are trying to contain God are the people who are trying to have God on their own terms. And this is a human problem. We, we all do this. We're all prone to this, making God uh, sort of into our own image and trying to have God on our own terms in ways that fit what we like and what we don't like. And that's a, that's a big problem, and that's why we need God to reveal himself to us so that we can know what's true about him. Now, the next thing that I want to focus on is that the author brings up this idea of a foundation. So she's talked about this idea of reconstruction and said you need to rebuild what you've torn down in deconstruction. And what she's going to say is that Jesus is this foundation. Jesus is this foundation that we must build upon. And she's going to call Jesus the most well-known heretic in history. So uh, here's what she says. With that said, that doesn't mean we're starting from scratch. There is already a foundation, one that will never deteriorate or crack or need rebuilding. 
and which is infinitely more valuable than any blueprint. And that is Jesus himself. In fact, Jesus is the most well-known heretic in history. The religious leaders of his time didn't like the life he lived, the message he spread, nor the followers he accumulated. They especially didn't like how he wouldn't fall in line with the status quo or allow religion to be used to keep the marginalized, the orphan, the widow, the alien, and the oppressed forced to the fringes of society and therefore dependent on those at the top. These leaders took everything Jesus stood for as an attack on the religious hierarchy and power structure they had so carefully cultivated. So they constantly tried to trap him into either betraying God, Rome, or both. And when they couldn't do that, they seethed with anger, eventually having him crucified a heretic at the hands of the state. Okay, so she starts to talk about Jesus. And so we get a little bit of something here. Um, Jesus is the foundation on which you are to reconstruct your faith. Now, I think it's problematic to call Jesus the most well-known heretic in history. And it, it is true that uh, Jesus had a lot of conflict with the religious leaders of his day, the Pharisees. Um, and it's true that he, the, the teachings that he gave went against the, the sort of the religious structure that they had established at the time, because uh, if you read the Gospels and if you do any study in there, you'll see that a lot of what Jesus said was correcting the misunderstandings of the Old Testament law that the Pharisees had. It had gotten to the point where the true intention of the law the true intention and the true nature of God's revelation to his people, Israel, had been twisted in various ways, and that the key point of that was missed. And so a lot of Jesus' teachings would go directly against um, a lot of what the Pharisees were saying, but it wasn't undermining the, the, uh, the core of what the Old Testament law was built on. Jesus fulfilled the Old Testament law, and that's what he taught. He said, I did not come to abolish the law, but to fulfill it. And so I, there, there's some truth in that Jesus had a lot of conflict with the religious leaders of the day, but we need to be careful that we don't take that too far, because what Jesus said was bringing people back to the essence of what the Old Testament was about, and the Pharisees had gotten off track from that. And so um, the Pharisees were angry at uh, the teachings that Jesus had, and he was, he, he was killed um, because the Pharisees saw him as a threat, and because he claimed to be God. He claimed to be the Messiah, but he claimed to be God himself. And to the Pharisees, this was blasphemy. So, in a limited sense, you can call Jesus a heretic if you want. But as we'll, as we'll get into, I, I think the way the author is kind of framing this is mistaken. And I just want to point out here that I think that you just get the sense that the, the author of this book has maybe fallen into an overly political reading of the gospel. So there, there are these elements of Jesus going against the um, religious leadership, the Jewish religious leadership of the day, but it was for very particular reasons. And um, I, I think we need to be careful. The, the gospels are, are not political treatises that are talking about power struggles. They are um, ancient biographies of the person of Jesus designed to have a written account of Jesus' life and ministry so that people would find their life in him. I say that about an overly political reading of the Gospels because if you read this book, Faith Deconstruction 101, and you're in this chapter, 
that we're going through right now, you'll see that the author has a link to a book um, that is called Binding the Strong Man, a political reading of Mark's story of Jesus. And so we just always need to keep in mind that there is a perspective being given when people talk about Jesus. And that perspective is either going to be in accord with the Gospels um, or it's not. All right. Now, the next movement here in the author's thinking about Jesus. So we have Jesus as this foundation. Jesus, for her, is kind of to be seen as this uh, the most well-known heretic in history. Now, she goes on to say that, uh, to, to make a statement, uh, she says, it is Jesus, not Christianity, that is the litmus test of faith. So there is a, there is a separation here between Jesus and Christianity as a whole. Um, it is Jesus, not Christianity, that is the litmus test of faith. What did he stand for? What did he promote? What would he not tolerate? How did he live? What did he want his followers to learn? Who did he protect? Who and what did he rebuke? He alone is the foundation upon which we can stand and build. Okay, so I think those are good questions. We need to think about what Jesus stood for, what he taught, how he lived, what did he rebuke. I think those are all great questions. I mean, that's if you're trying to understand who Jesus was, those are the key questions. And you can find the answers to those in the accounts of his life found in the New Testament, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Now, it's, it's, it's strange to separate Jesus in Christianity um, because Christianity is the, is the religion that came from Jesus himself. I mean, people were called Christians in the ancient world because they followed Christ, Jesus Christ. Christianity is came from Jesus. So to separate the two, I think you first have to ask, is that even possible? Is it possible to separate uh, the founder of Christianity from what Christianity is? And I would say the answer is no. I mean, the, the, this goes back to, are there core truths that one must believe in order to be a Christian? And there definitely are. I mean, if, if you read C.S. Lewis' book, Mere Christianity, that's the idea of mere Christianity. It's like, what, what are the essentials that a person must believe if they're going to be a Christian? And the, the idea that Jesus is God incarnate, um, is definitely one of those core beliefs. The, the fact that we are sinful, that we need salvation, and that Jesus' death and resurrection provides that, that's an essential. So this statement that it is Jesus, not Christianity, that is the litmus test of faith, I think it, it's a failure to see that you can't separate the person of Jesus from the work of Jesus. And those core beliefs of the Christian faith have to do with both the person and the work of Jesus. So I don't think it's possible to separate Jesus and Christianity because Christianity, true Christianity, uh, the, the, those core essentials, it, it flows from Jesus' life and ministry and what he taught. I think we do need a litmus test of faith, as in we need, this goes back to the idea of a standard or criteria by which we determine what is true Christianity and what is not. I, I, I think that's true. But I don't think you can separate Jesus from Christianity. Now, she goes on to say this, We cannot tell you what to deconstruct, how to reconstruct, or when to do any of it. But we can tell you that if you remain firm in him, he will guide you in the way you should go. 
so this comes back to this tension that I think is in this book, and it's that this author is trying to uh, provide guidance for people in how to go through a deconstruction process and then a reconstruction process. She's trying to provide specific, a specific direction for people to go, and yet, at the same time, she's not really providing any sure uh, steps or what she would call a blueprint for how somebody should go about this. Um, if you can't tell somebody what to deconstruct, how do they know what beliefs are no longer useful or are harmful or are outdated, however you want to label it? If you can't tell them how to reconstruct, how are they going to know how to proceed? And if they don't know when to do any of it, um, it, it, it seems like there's really nothing here for people to hold on to. But she goes back to saying, basically, remain firm in Jesus and he will guide you. And I, I think that just raises the question. I think you have to go back and say, who was Jesus? What did Jesus teach? How can we know what he taught? Can we know what he taught? I think this section, it, it raises a lot more questions than it provides answers to. And, and I would say that we can know what Jesus taught and that we do have a foundation in him. But I think it also depends entirely on who you think Jesus was. Um, just because somebody is talking about Jesus or they use his name doesn't necessarily mean that they have in view the Jesus of the New Testament Gospels. People make Jesus who they want him to be a lot of the times. And this is what we do with God. We, we have a tendency to, have, to try to have God on our own terms. Instead of letting God be God, we want him to be who we want him to be. If there's things in the Bible that we don't like about God, then we just either don't pay attention to those or we just refuse to believe that he has certain characteristics. And people do the same thing with Jesus. So I think having Jesus as the foundation just raises the question, who is Jesus and what does it mean to have him as a foundation? Jesus taught his disciples to abide in him because he said, apart from me, you can do nothing. And so if a person is a a Christian trying to follow Jesus, then of course they would say he's the foundation for their life, and they, they, they would say they can't do anything without him. But without really having a clear understanding of who Jesus is and, and a way to know that, it's unclear what it means to have him as a foundation. Um, so I just think some of this is strange. Uh, the, the author has kind of already stated that the process of reconstruction really doesn't have a blueprint or particular steps or any ideas that can universally guide everyone who embarks upon it. But if this is true, I think we need to ask what grounds does the author have for claiming that Jesus is the foundation in the way that she does? Why not have some other religious figure as a foundation? Why not have a secular philosophical principle apart from any religious figures? So the problem here, I think, is that you can't really have Jesus as a foundation. Like, you can't just say that and at the same time tell people, well, there's really no blueprint for how you should go about this. There's no particular ideas or uh, steps that can be this universal guide for people, except for the idea that Jesus is your foundation. And I, I think at that point, somebody could just object and say, why does it have to be Jesus? Why couldn't it be Buddha? Or why couldn't it be Confucius? Or why do I even need 
any sort of religious figure at all. Um, maybe I just want to have a uh, more of a secular humanist way of approaching life, and so I think I think that's a that's a problem. Another interesting thing about this appeal to Jesus is that Jesus did not teach that God was unknowable. He taught that God uh, should be known as our Father, and that there are specific truths about God that we can know, and. Jesus claimed to perfectly reveal the Father. This is just very different from the way the author talks about our ability to know God, and it gets back to the question of, has God revealed himself or not? Has God revealed himself clearly or not? And if he has, there is nothing at all that is not warranted about people saying that there are truths about God that we can know. And one final thing here that I'll mention about the author's appeal to Jesus is that um, she says Jesus is kind of this foundation. She also wants to set Jesus up as an example for uh, people to imitate. Uh, She says he didn't bow to intimidation, threats, or even promises of power. He remained steadfast in what he knew to be true, beautiful, and good, regardless of the cost. Now, again, this is a little vague. Um, But it does raise the question, what did Jesus actually teach? We can't just have Jesus on our own terms. Um, We have to be clear about what he taught and um, what he stood for and what that means for us today. I mean, I I think it is right to point to Jesus as an example uh, for Christians to follow. I mean, that's one aspect of his ministry is to serve as an example of what a life uh, lived well before God looks like. Um, none of us can be perfect like Jesus was, but that, that wasn't uh, his, his point, uh, was to live that perfect life that we couldn't live, and then for us to put our trust in him and what he did so that we might be uh, saved and justified before God uh, and be forgiven for our sins. But um, I think if you're going to set Jesus up as an example in this way, it, it just comes back to what did Jesus really teach? And I think I think Jesus' whole ministry, and I think the things he taught, if you go and read the Gospels, does not fit with the author's characterization of deconstruction. It's like she's she's using Jesus as uh, an example of this, you know, the most well-known heretic in history and says he needs to be a foundation, but um, for reasons that I've said, I, I think this is a, a problematic way of looking at Jesus, and I think there's some, uh, I think there's some incoherences that are present here. Okay, the next thing I want to touch on is that the author characterizes, um, she makes this distinction between what she calls the old way of seeing and then this way of progress. Now, the first piece of this is the idea that certain people, they idolize certainty in their thinking, and that their, their lives are sort of governed by black and white thinking and, and truth when it comes to religion. So I'm just going to read a section here. She's talking about people who, um, you know, if you're if you're going through this process of deconstruction, she's saying that you're probably going to have some people in your church. Uh, they're probably going to approach you and be and show concern because they think that you are uh, walking away from the truth or that you're in trouble or something like that. And She's basically giving people advice like you have to create boundaries with people like this. So um, she's 
uh, talking about these others who might approach you in this way. And she says, remember, walking away from certainty, from truth, from black and white and into the gray is not only disconcerting, it can also leave you vulnerable. You need people who will have the difficult conversations, who will sit with you in your pain, who will help you heal, who aren't afraid to go on the journey with you. If the people you currently know aren't ready to do that, you can't force them. But don't be afraid to forge new relationships with people who will help you deconstruct and reconstruct in a healthy way. And previously she described people like this. Uh, She says, for example, have you ever been caught off guard by someone cornering you at church or interacting with you on social media telling you they're worried about you? They come to you expressing concern for your faith, your heart, or even your very soul because they truly believe that what you're going through is a sign of a lack of trust in God, Jesus, the Bible, or whatever part of their faith they believe is essential for salvation. And for many, underneath that worry and concern is also fear. Fear that if you keep asking questions and looking for answers, you will destroy the foundation of their faith and therefore identity. So rather than being intrigued or supporting your faith journey, they will do what it takes to draw you back into the certainty they subconsciously cling to and even idolize. Okay, so you get the sense there. There's people who think they kind of have the truth when it comes to God. They are, according to the author, they idolize certainty. They're kind of stuck in this black and white thinking. Things are either this way or that way, true or false. And um, true true progress is found more in this idea of going into the gray. Like we, we don't want to be stuck in black and white thinking and idolizing certainty. We want to go into the gray and and kind of embrace that. Now, at this point, again, going into the gray is a little unclear, but just the the sense that you get is that the, the author seems to be saying that if people are Christians, they think they have the truth about God and about salvation, they, in some sense, are those stuck in this old way of thinking where they, they think they have to have the truth. And they think they do have the truth. And anyone who kind of questions that is a threat. Um, it's a threat to their their identity and who they are. It's it's a threat to their beliefs. And so the, the first comment that I just want to make here is that um, I think there are people like this in churches who anytime that they feel like their beliefs are being questioned— or if they're put in a situation where their beliefs are questioned, they really don't know how to handle this. And it does seem kind of threatening because they've not really thought very deeply about why they believe uh, what they believe versus something else. Maybe they've not had a lot of conversations with people who have different worldviews. And so it's an unfamiliar situation when they encounter somebody who seems to be questioning the things that they've kind of always taken for granted and never really questioned. So for some, this is a, an uncomfortable situation. But I think, I think the antidote to this is that Christians need to at least have some kind of exposure on how to think about what they believe and why they believe it. Not just what they believe, but why they believe it. Because inevitably, every Christian is going to have some kind of experience where they come across somebody who believes differently than them, and they will probably have their beliefs challenged in some way. And the way that you know that somebody has not um, 
they've not thought too deeply about why they believe what they believe is that they will react in kind of a uh, nervous nervous way or they might get a little tense or they might get a little angry and they might not handle the situation very well. And so I, I just bring that up to say that some people are kind of like this, but I think it's because they've never really thought too much about why it is they believe what they believe versus something else. And they're just not used to talking with people from a different perspective. So it's unfamiliar to them. Now, I don't think that it is right to um, characterize all people who believe that they know the truth about God as idolizing certainty and stuck in black and white thinking. Um, Like other places in this book, it's just very unclear what the author means by this, but I don't see any reason for thinking that somebody is idolizing certainty and that their life is guided by a black and white thinking in, in, in like a negative way. Um, I just This gives the sense that the author thinks that it is a negative thing if you believe that you have the truth about God. That's kind of the main message that you get from this, even though some of the other aspects of it are unclear. But an interesting point about this is that if the author... So the author's writing this book. If the author is writing about what she thinks is the true way to think about religion, as in this deconstruction, reconstruction, how does she escape this criticism? Because if you think people are mistaken in thinking that they have um, the right beliefs about their religion or the right beliefs about God, you know, they're, they're obviously going to think people who have different beliefs are mistaken in some way. But the author is doing the same thing in writing this book. She's writing about what she thinks is the right way to think about Christian faith. The right way to think about Christian faith is to go through this process of deconstruction and reconstruction because she sees it as a part of what it means to have faith. And this is something that we'll get into in the next section. But just notice that. The author is writing this book telling people about the right way to think about religious beliefs, while at the same time criticizing the view that if people think they have the truth about God, then they're they're just idolizing certainty, or they're stuck in black and white thinking. And I think this is just, I think it's another incoherence. I mean, I, I don't think anybody can get away from being committed to the beliefs that they hold as true. No matter who you are, you're going to have beliefs that you are committed to when it comes to God and these ultimate questions that you are going to think are true. And, and, and by nature of truth, truth itself is exclusive. If you hold to one thing being true, then you're automatically saying the opposite of that belief is false. Therefore, people who believe differently than you do on a matter you think is true are wrong. If the author is going to use this way of thinking about uh, Christians who think they know the truth about God, then it seems to me that the same criticism would apply to her because I think everybody is in the same boat when it comes to thinking that their beliefs are true. The next phase here, the next big uh, concept from this chapter is what is called the spiritual cycle. And this is getting more into the author's kind of backing up and saying uh, this process of deconstruction and reconstruction is a process of spiritual renewal. And it is actually, uh, this process of spiritual renewal is a cycle that is part of the life of faith. Um, And it moves in three main phases that are called order, disorder, and reorder. 
So I'm just going to read what she says about this. Order, disorder, and reorder. And she's referring to a specific author who developed this idea. So she says, uh, in a nutshell, uh, he says that we all start in the calm state of order, where everything in our world makes sense and has a place. But then something causes that order to be disrupted or broken, so we move into disorder, or as we've been calling it, deconstruction. Things don't make sense. We're filled with all sorts of doubts and questions that seem to have no answers or something we once believed no longer works, but we don't know what to do about it. Eventually, we move in reorder, or reconstruction, by integrating our new findings into how we view the world. This reordered state becomes our new order, and we find ourselves back at the beginning of the cycle, happily enjoying the calm until something else comes along to disrupt it. So you get the concept there, order, disorder, and reorder. It's just a... uh, it's a different way of thinking about deconstruction and reconstruction. And earlier in the book, the author talked about faith being a journey and not a destination. That was a big point. Faith is, it, faith is a journey. It's not a destination. And I think that this, this idea of order, disorder, reorder, um, it does express that faith is a journey. But I think, as we'll see, kind of following on the, on the last section, it seems to demonize religious truth. So if somebody thinks that they have the truth, uh, at least in its exclusive form. So this would mean that wanting certainty and knowing beyond a shadow of a doubt is is not, it's not right. I think that you can see this, see some of these things come up as she goes on. She says, we think this is a beautiful and apt description of how our spiritual renewal works because it shows how it naturally flows from one stage to the next. It also shows that it is never over. We never arrive or have it all figured out. In theory, we should spend the entirety of our temporal lives going through this cycle, discovering new things about ourselves, the divine, creation, and others, and more importantly, learning to embrace uncertainty, paradox, and tension. That can seem daunting and even discouraging to our Western minds. We want, crave even, certainty and knowing beyond a shadow of a doubt. We think tension is something to be resolved. Paradoxes are to be avoided at all costs. And uncertainty is simply a sign of a lack of faith. And our modern faith traditions only reinforce and reflect that. They have taught us that they alone have the full truth, that we need to just believe everything they tell us in order to be good Christians. But we must unlearn that mindset and learn to accept that it is impossible to arrive at a full, complete understanding of God. We must recognize that faith is much less about correct beliefs than we've been taught. The sooner we do that, the sooner we can be at ease and relax into the process, seeing it as a journey deeper into the heart of God rather than a place of intellectual arrival. Okay, so there is a lot there. But I think uh, she talks about unlearning this mindset and that we have to recognize that we will never arrive at this full, complete understanding of God. Now, I've already addressed that. Um, this comes up again. It's, it's not a good way to think about knowledge of God. Uh, just because we can't know God in his fullness doesn't mean we can't know God, that we can't know truths about God. It all depends on whether God has revealed himself and in what way, and um, that's something that the author really hasn't addressed. There, there's been this assumption, a certain way of thinking about knowledge of God, that is just not correct, and you see it pop up over and over again. She says, we must recognize that faith is much less about correct beliefs than we've been taught. Well, I think this depends on what you 
how you think about faith. Faith is a response of trust to what we have good reason to believe is true. At least that's the the Bible's understanding of faith. It is a response of trust in God based upon good reasons for believing that we can trust God. I think one thing that that might be the the grain of truth here is that Christian faith is not simply about intellectual beliefs. Christian faith, to have faith in God, saving faith, does not mean that you just believe certain things about theology. That's mere intellectual assent. True faith, true trust in God, a response of trust in Him, means that, yes, there are certain things that you, that you must believe, but that is not the, the, the complete essence of what faith is. Faith is trust in a person, committing yourself to a person. So no one who is trying to characterize a Christian faith from the Bible's teaching would say that it's just a matter of correct beliefs. I think that's a misunderstanding of it. It involves correct beliefs, uh, as does everything having to do with truth, but it involves a commitment of your whole self to the person of God. And, and, and then she mentions this idea that we have to sort of relax into this process of order, disorder, reorder. Once we understand that faith is not necessarily as much about correct beliefs than we were taught, we'll see it as this journey deeper into the heart of God rather than a place of intellectual arrival. And I think the problem here is that you have to, in order to understand what a journey deeper into the heart of God is, you have to know who God is. And um, presumably, if you are getting closer to God, which is what this seems to be saying, this, this journey deeper into the heart of God, God, you have to know who God is, you have to know how that you can have a relationship with God. And if you are going deeper into the heart of God, it means that you are getting to know God more. And it seems hard to understand how you could know God more if God does not have any unchanging truths about him or or any attributes. If God has any attributes, they're unchanging. So here I think um, when you gut faith of its content, when you say that faith is really not about correct beliefs, it's more about this journey. When you kind of gut faith of its most of its content and you want to see kind of thinking you have the truth about God as a problem, it doesn't leave much to fill this idea of, of this journey. What, what does it mean for faith to be this journey if the author's right in all the things that she's saying? It seems like there's nothing really left. Um, what does it mean to journey deeper into the heart of God if we don't have a firm grasp of who God is? If we don't know how to approach God, if we don't know his attributes, and I think this is a problem. From a Christian perspective, from a biblical perspective, um, the Christian life is a journey, and and we are growing, uh, Christians who are growing in their faith are growing to know God more. But the foundation for that is who God has revealed himself to be in Jesus, and he's revealed himself in a particular way, with particular attributes, with a particular purpose. So all that provides a foundation for that journey. But if you strip all that away, it's hard to know what a journey deeper into the heart of God means anymore. Um, She says that modern faith traditions reinforce this idea that tension is something to be resolved, paradoxes are to be avoided at all costs, and uncertainty is simply a sign of a lack of faith. And I would just say this isn't true. The Bible contains many tensions, paradoxes, 
and places where people are expressing uncertainty that, that is not a sign of a lack of faith. Um, having uncertainty, having questions, having doubt, it's not always a sign of a lack of faith. It's, it's, it's part of um, the human condition that, that, that we're finite, that we don't know everything, that we're going to have times where we're uncertain. And there are also um, tensions and paradoxes in the Bible. And just one example of that would be how to understand the relationship between God's sovereignty and human freedom. That's been an issue that has been discussed for thousands of years. And there's not a contradiction in trying to understand that relationship, but there is a paradox. Uh, and might not be something that we can fully wrap our minds around, even though there are different ways of trying to think about that. So overall, there, there are tensions and paradoxes um, in the Bible, and expressing uncertainty is not a sign of a lack of faith. At least, it's not always. The Bible portrays that as a normal part of uh, the Christian life. Now, the last thing that I want to touch on is just to point out that there's something about this, this spiritual cycle that's incoherent. So the spiritual cycle, remember, is the author's way of talking about uh, the process of deconstruction and reconstruction. And she says it, it, it occurs in those three phases. You're, you're in a state of order, uh, then you move into a state of uh, disorder, that's the deconstruction phase, and then you move into a state of reorder, which is reconstruction. And then you're back to a place of order, and then it's going to happen again at some point. So she's saying this is part of what it means to be a Christian or the life of faith, uh, pursuing the divine. She says this is what it is like. Now, notice this is a whole new framework for thinking about Christian faith. It's a whole new framework for thinking about religious belief as a whole. Uh, She's moving people from thinking of what she sees as kind of a black and white way of thinking about things, idolizing certainty to this vision of the spiritual cycle. Uh, faith is a journey, not a destination. Well, the, the, the spiritual cycle is encapsulates all that. But the incoherence here, again, I mentioned it briefly before, but it is she is prescribing the spiritual cycle as the true way to think about religious beliefs or Christian beliefs. But I would just ask, how, how, how are we to be certain that this is correct. Because in, in some sense, if it is illegitimate or, or if, if, it's a, if it's a mistake to think that you have the truth about God, if that's kind of black and white thinking or idolizing certainty, then how can we be certain that the spiritual cycle is the right way to think about it? How do we know that's not another example of just somebody illegitimately thinking that they know the truth about God, that they know the true way to pursue and know God, it might be wrong. So I think it's legitimate to ask um, how, how we can be certain that this is right. And it, and it really goes back to the same kind of question. How do we know that Jesus is the foundation, like the author says here? Based on the criteria that she has put forth, there doesn't seem to be any reason to, to stay in those boundaries. She concludes the chapter by saying, No matter how it happens for you, just know that you're on the right path when you keep going, keep forging ahead, and keep moving through the cycle again and again and again. So the spiritual cycle is the prescription for how to think correctly about your religious beliefs. That's what she's saying. Now, where does this cycle lead people? And what's the end goal? 
by which we're to measure spiritual progress. I mean, it seems to be a vision of true spiritual progress. We are putting off the things that are no longer useful or valid, and we're reconstructing our beliefs, and we're going through this spiritual cycle, but where is this ultimately leading us? And that's a little bit of what she's going to get into in the next chapter. But um, for today, that that is it. Um, just the main ideas that we talked about from this chapter is the idea of reconstruction uh, and how that's different from deconstruction, um, breaking away from established religions and denominations and kind of uh, forging ahead in the tradition of what the author sees as the heretics of old. Uh, she says you need to have Jesus as the foundation for all this. You need to understand the distinction between the old way of seeing that clings to certainty and black and white thinking and embrace the way of progress that is um, the spiritual cycle. And really that this cycle of spiritual renewal is is a journey with no end. I think overall it, it, it seems that the author's expression of these ideas is both vague and incoherent at times. I think there's a tension in the author's writing in which she wants to distance herself and her readers from any sort of inflexible religious dogmatism. But she wants to encourage them towards a pursuit of God guided by the spiritual cycle with Jesus as the foundation. But as I've kind of said, in the end, this is just another kind of religious dogmatism. The author's assumption about knowledge of God and trying to have Jesus as the foundation are both problematic. And I think it may be that all of this could be more of a reaction towards a certain view of Christianity uh, than anything else. Um, And what I mean is that sometimes if you're talking to somebody who um, says that they were an atheist, or if you're talking to somebody who maybe would be in in this camp of deconstructing their faith, um, like I said in the first episode where I talked about the deconstruction movement as a whole, it's really important to know when people say they used to be Christians, what do they mean by that? What, what was Christianity to them? And sometimes people are coming from a, a very uh, legalistic background in the church, and uh, that's not consistent with the gospel. It's not consistent with what Jesus taught. So if somebody is embracing a new approach to spirituality as a result of reacting against kind of a Christian legalism, then they haven't really known the true gospel of Christ, and they they need to be made aware of what that is. But thank you for listening. That is it for today. Uh, please feel free, if you enjoy this podcast, to tell others who you think might be interested in the topics that are covered. Um, you can find this on uh, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Podcasts, and many other places. Uh, Reasoned Hope at Reasoned Hope Podcast at gmail.com is uh, an email address where you can send in any questions, comments, or uh, topics that you might want covered on the show. Um, I appreciate you listening. And remember that there is reason for hope in Jesus Christ.